Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Work. The Work is a podcast that I do every week or so with Gene Achille, the uh, doyen of HR Tech. And today we're going to be talking with Ben Weber. And Ben, ben, is, ben is a really interesting guy. Ben is um, part of the... Um, ecosystem at MIT and the Media Lab and um, has been a pioneer in the arena of people analytics, but it isn't people analytics in the way that um, you often see people analytics. For the most part, people do people analytics, and it's, and it's another way of saying, we just got a copy of Qualtrics, and so we're going to look at the data in a new way. Um, but, but what Ben means... Um, it, by people analytics is a clear look at the interactions between people and how the network that's inside of work actually expresses the nature of the organization. He built, co-founded a company called Humanize, which um, if I'm not mistaken, Humanize is, let me look at my notes here. Humanize is about 12 years old. And it was the outgrowth of um, earlier uh, work where where Ben was the guy who instrumented himself as the beginning of the sort of uh, quantified self movement. It's it's um uh, he's got a long history of looking at the intersection of technology and organizations and people as a way of better understanding what's going on. It's my privilege to have known him for some time now. I also want to let you know that he was the honorary chairman of the People Analytics and HR Techs Association in Japan. So, so Ben's got this sort of global footprint in HR Tech. How are you, Ben? Doing well. It's good to, uh, good to see you again, uh, John. And Gene, it's good to, uh, to meet you as well. Thanks for having me on. You are... You are Absolutely, the, the 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 audience will never see the video that we use to do this. But you are absolutely the only guest we will ever have who's got the annotated Sherlock Holmes sitting on, over your shoulder. I do. Back. It was not not intended. <laughs> just for you, John. It was just for you. It was just for me. I've got the annotated uh, Malice in Wonderland, but that's 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 a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm gonna I'm gonna start big and see where we go. Um, you have been watching for over a decade the unfolding of network analysis and behavioral analysis woven into network analysis inside of organizations. And I'm sure you started with a bunch of hypotheses about what you'd see. And my guess is that you ended up with a different story than the one that you started out with. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I guess that when we first started looking at this kind of data, again, looking at connections between people, how they communicate, how that changes over time, um, I really thought um, that a number of things um, were going to matter that, that didn't. Um, and also, I thought a number of things wouldn't matter that actually do, right? um, which is, you know, at, at this point, not surprising. I'm sort of, uh, you know, at this point, I, I always have hypotheses, and often they are being proved wrong. Um, you know, when looking at communication in particular, a lot of times um, I at least thought that things like the content of communication was really going to matter an awful lot for um, predicting outcomes, predicting you know, retention, predicting performance. 
And just very quickly became clear that that is not so important at larger scales. Um, and of course, there is some you know newer research looking at very specific contexts, things like customer service, um, where you can find predictive power of things like content. But in general, when I look within organizations um, and you're trying to predict these, these macro issues, uh, just content, you know, first of all, computers are not very good um, at understanding content, despite what uh, maybe some folks will uh, you know, say publicly, it's just still not true. Um, and that beyond that, um, you know, even looking at um, that kind of data, you get about a five to 10% lift in predictive power when it comes to predicting these outcomes, which is not zero. But the, the vast majority of the predictive power you get in terms of these outcomes are really in the structure of the network, right? And how that changes over time. And I mean, a good way to think about this is if you're, you know, imagine that the executive team of an organization only communicates once a month with the marketing team. It doesn't really matter what they talk about that one time, the bigger issues that they barely communicate. And at large scales, you just see those effects uh, dominate. Right? Um, and again, I, I expected those things to be important, but really not to the scale that they were um, and to the order of magnitude of predictive power that they are, right? Like you're seeing, you know, we consistently see when we have hard KPIs, you know, 40 to 60% of the variance in outcomes being predicted by these things, um, which is an awful lot. Right. On the flip side, I also thought that geographic proximity wouldn't matter um, when you look at how people work and how they communicate. Um, and again, the idea that I can send an email to anyone in the world, so why should it matter where I sit? But it turns out that um, you communicate a lot more to people you sit next to, which when you say it like that is not shocking. If I sit next to you, I will talk more to you. What's interesting is that you see these effects. It's not just face-to-face -face interaction. You see this with email, you see it with chat, with meetings. Um, and again, it's not just who sits next to you, it's who sits in the same row, same floor, and you see these effects sort of slowly degrade, um, which is not to say that people can't talk over long distances. It's just to say that if you put your money down and what's likely to happen, and if you want a strong tool to shape how people work, things like physical space are much more powerful than I originally thought. Um, and so I think that it, it, maybe it was really early on lessons like that just taught me that it, it's, and you of course always have exceptions to these things, right? But, you know, really trying to understand what's, you know, first your initial hypotheses should be based on the general evidence, and then trying to use this kind of data to, to rapidly iterate and understand where those exceptions exist, you know, in different parts of organizations. I just fundamentally think that's, that's the right way to look at these, uh, these sort of phenomena. So, so if I were to summarize what you just said, it would be one that um, it's a mistake to think about individual contribution as a primary factor in organizational performance, that what you want to do is look at the network and let and have the network be the way that you predict how an organization is going to work. And then the second point that you made is that um, Net human networks function better when humans are close together. In general, I will say this is always in general, right? Um, I'd say human networks are much easier to change when people are in oh. person, right? Um, you can do it remotely. It just takes more work, right? In general, it's not to say it's impossible. It's to say it is less likely to change rapidly. Um, and this is something we've seen during the pandemic and 
all these things. I mean, I do want to touch on your first point, though, just in a little bit more detail, because I, I don't think this is said enough. I, I fundamentally believe that when we're looking at understanding organizations, we're looking at improving organizations, I really believe that the individual is fundamentally an incorrect unit of analysis, right? The whole reason we're in organizations, first of all, is because together we can do something we couldn't do by ourselves. But beyond that, when we look at all the things that predict the bigger outcomes that we care about, it's about this interaction between people. And so it's not just about what person A does, it's also with people that they interact with and who do they interact with. And so you can't just easily isolate out single people. And I think this also indicates, you know, this, this larger problem that I think, you know, really since the Industrial Revolution we've had with regards to management, where sort of treating people with, for example, the same job title as essentially cogs in a machine, right? E even today, I have a software developer and most organizations assume that I could take out that software developer, put in another person with the same title and you would get the same performance, assuming all their former skills, their form formal skills are the same. And what our kind of data you know, very strongly indicates is that that's just not true. A person's work and their influence on the organization, it's not just your individual skills, it's how does that diffuse across all the people you work with. And that is in you know, the network of this person that they've created over time. And so removing that person fundamentally alters how information flows. And again, that could be good, but that you can't fool yourself into saying that just having a new person with that title will suddenly come into that same network. Like that will not happen um, in any scenario, right? And so thinking about, um, I think those issues is important as well as I think to your point, I would just really argue that organizations and people should think about, you know, physical workplace is still just from the data I've looked at, it's the easiest way to rapidly change how people interact, more than org charts, more than communication tools. And these are all important, but if you think about it fundamentally, it's just a tool we can use, a management tool, to change how people work, then I think we can hopefully remove a lot of the emotion that a lot of us get when we talk about you know, going into a physical office and just say, all right, is this you know, the kind of interaction that we wanna have happen? Do we need to change how we work? It's likely gonna be easier to do in a physical um, physical environment. So, so I'm going to drill down here just a little bit more. Um, um, I think we're in agreement that the individual is the wrong unit of analysis. But if the individual is the wrong unit of analysis, who am I going to blame when things go wrong? Um, and uh, that's, that's a non-trivial question. Uh, it, there's a whole bunch of people trained in management where the idea of management is isolate the evildoer and get rid of them. If I can't, if I if I'm not going to be able to rely on that as my primary management tool, um, scapegoat discovery. Um, how do you modify the way things get done at a group level? It's it's a it's a um, something that I don't think many people have skills at. I mean, I think it's complicated, right? I, and I won't say that I have the answer to that at this point. Like, how do you completely re-engineer an organization so that? even the unit of you know things like compensation wouldn't be the individual and reward wouldn't be the individual that is very challenging to think about i do think that that is ultimately where things have to go right because too much of the time whether you know blame or success is pinned on a single person and first of all it's unclear if that single person was actually responsible for either a success or a failure like they could have just been in the you know right or wrong place at the right time right? If you get put, you know, on some project where as long as you do a competent job, it's going to be successful. 
it's not because you were there, right? It's that that was, you know, you did a fine job, but you didn't do like 10 times better than everyone else. But of course, we know that the implications on someone's career, if they are on some project that is very successful, is, is astronomical. And those benefits disproportionately accrue to those people. And again, in a similar way, if you get hit, right, something fails, maybe through no fault of your own. You might have even done a competent job and it's just, it was extremely unlikely to be successful. Um, people still view that negatively, right? Um, versus, and I think, again, this results-oriented analysis, right, is generally wrong, right? Like for across most you know, um, just uh, fields like looking at only results is pretty poor. You should, in general, try to isolate, you know, what are the processes that probabilistically relate the outcomes you care about? And I admit that it's very hard to do that. And it's very hard to think about, well, you know, is it that a whole group of people who contributed has, you know, some sort of compensation that then is modified in some way, depending on success or failure, but that we don't pin that on an individual? Possibly. It, it's hard. Like, I will completely admit that. Um, but that I do think as we start to think in this way, you know, maybe organizations start to put worry a little bit less about assuming they can find, for example, like the perfect candidate for a job, right? Or that this, this candidate, they're so much better than the number two candidate. It's highly unlikely to actually be true, right? That maybe you get people who are a couple percentage points better, um, right? But that, you know, a priori assuming, you know, putting everything on a single individual, it's not to say it doesn't happen. Right? But that just, if again, if I'm playing the numbers, that's probably not what's going to lead to the outcomes we care about. I, I have a question, though, John. Just just give me a minute here because, I, you know, not to be totally cynical, but I will be. Um, and having <laughs> been in, come up through the ranks, uh, so to speak, I've seen a lot of use of the data for what I would call self-validation or kind of feel-good moments or we're so special, um, you know, and, and so there really isn't because I'm listening to you talk right now and I'm saying, well, okay, this would be a compelling argument for bringing people back into the physical office. However, didn't we just live through moments that gave us an opportunity to think expansively and innovatively and maybe change that model in a way that also enables us to engage um, underrepresented populations, such as disabled employees who can't come into an office. Uh, so, so I know I've just thrown yeah. a mouthful out there. I'd love to have your feedback, Ben. No, but that, I mean, it's a great point. I mean, especially when you think about engaging, I, I would say, particularly people who can't come into a workplace, you know, whether they're, you know, um, disabled individuals um, or people with disabilities, um, you know, folks who, uh, maybe can't afford to live close enough, you know, to, you know, an office in the Bay Area, for example, um, and you can bring them in. That's, um, that's laudable. Um, I think I have seen arguments that, oh, well, like we have a very, you know, like, for example, I've seen arguments that say, well, you know, transgender employees have an easier time um, online because they don't have to deal with people making comments about their appearance. Doing this remotely, doesn't mean you, you haven't fixed the cultural problem, right? You sort of ignored exactly. it, right? Exactly. And so that, that's not a good reason. I, right. I think the other the thing you said in terms of people who especially can't physically come in, like that is a good reason. And I'm not saying that you know remote technologies or working remotely is never good. What I'm saying is that all of these things are tools. They're just, I would view them as management tools to change how we work, right? And that's it. And that to the extent that, especially when you see things like when people come into a physical office, to the extent you're more likely to have, you know, broader networks, which is on average true, 
then again, I think a lot of the issues you brought up become even more salient because if that is the case, right, even if people aren't coming in every day, they're occasionally coming in, right? And in general, if what we see is that people who do are able to come into the office, you know, have, you know, these broader networks, then if your remote employees are disproportionately likely to be, for example, you know, disabled individuals, then that means you're essentially discriminating against those individuals. And so exactly. planning. But again, you were, it requires some amount of data to see that, right? Like, is that actually happening? Because a lot of companies, to your point, do think they're special. Right? I mean, almost everyone does. Everyone says, oh, well, I know that could be a problem, but we're very inclusive. Okay, prove it. Like, I would just want to see the data. And I do think it's not bad, first of all, to validate something you're doing with data. Like, that's not inherent. That's good, right? If, like, you're doing something, some management practice, let's say you have some training program that you believe increases interaction between management and frontline employees, you and you validate that, that's great. You are not, you know, throwing your money in the trash. Like, that's a good thing to know. Ideally, you keep validating that, right? Ideally, a year you revisit that because it's highly likely that in a year, business conditions change, culture changes in some way. And so maybe it did work and now it doesn't work. And so I'd want to look at that again. You know, at the same time, especially when you think something, you know, um, has worked in the past, it's always unclear if, you know, you know, what were you, was your company successful because of what you did or did you just, did it not matter? Right. And, you know, an example to bring up here is, you know, a company that we worked with, which is, you know, one of the largest banks in the world, um, was on a call with one of their top executives a few weeks ago. And it turns out that their, um, a lot of their work-life metrics are very poor, right? So if you look at their executives tend to work very long hours, they um, also work a lot on the weekends. Um, to a very extreme degree. And we could talk about what that means. But it was interesting because actually their frontline employees weren't doing that, which is good, right? And because I was telling them, listen, this is a, you know, it, you're very likely to have higher levels of attrition in the executive team. They're likely to burn out and they'll have lower performance. And you also, of course, worry that those behaviors would spread to the rest of the organization. Because if, you know, the CEO is sending emails at 2 a.m. to to an employee, they're going to assume that that's the expectation. I should reply to that and that's the norm, right? And that hasn't happened yet, but it could. And so, you know, the executives are like, well, listen, Ben, I get that that's true, you know, in in general, but, you know, we're one of the most successful organizations in the world and pretty sure we've been doing it this way for hundreds of years, you know, for our whole history. And, you know, I hear lots of stories about entrepreneurs and people in startups working really long hours and being very successful. So like, this is probably fine for us because like we're very successful. And so I said to them, well, all right, let, let's, you know, you are very successful, but let's, let's just do a thought exercise. Imagine that in your, you know, 200 something year history, every year on December 31st, you had a ceremony. What you would do is you would take a million dollars, you put it in a pile and you'd light it on fire, right? That's your ceremony. You do that every single year. You did that for hundreds of years. So if you add all that up, that means over, you know, two, 300 year period, you've burned hundreds of millions of dollars, literally. Um, their profit in a single quarter um, this year has been well over a billion dollars. Um, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter at all that they literally lit a million dollars on fire every single year. Um, but of course, that is, that is provably a terrible management practice. And, and I think this, this gets to the issue of that, that people, again, and I feel, I feel for these executives, first of all, right? Because they have legitimately wasted years of their lives just, you know, mindlessly you know, working into the night because they assume that that is what you should do to be successful. But like it turns out, that's that's not a good thing to do in general, right? It's not. And 
I think the vast majority of folks, I mean, and I don't, this isn't just leaders or executives. I think this is all of us. You know, we want to assume that we are successful because the decisions we made were correct. Um, and because, you know, and because we're, we're, because we, we have the skills, we don't want to think that, oh, we just got lucky or we could have basically done anything. And as long as we weren't like horribly incompetent, we would have been fine. Right. We want to think again, it's because of us that we were successful. And I think a lot of times what this kind of data starts to show is that that, that is not necessarily the case. Like it, like some of these things we do, some of the things we do around work are quite ineffective. And I would actually argue a lot of the things we do around management are extremely ineffective, but that because basically no one knows what they're doing, a lot of folks can get away with it, but that it, it makes it so much harder, I think, for management to evolve. Like we, we see people management is so prone to these, these fads over time. And it, it's because people lack the ability and lack the data to be able to understand, you know, who actually knows what they're talking about, which things actually work. And all the people go off of is, oh, that company is successful right now. And so we should copy what they do. So we model right. against them. Yeah. 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 So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to back up just a second and talk about the scale of observation that you've had over the last 10 yeah. years. Because, because yeah. I, you know, I was thinking somebody who just dropped in on this conversation might not understand that you have consumed data about millions and millions and millions of interactions between people with the humanized system and that that your conclusions come from a level of understanding about individual interaction in the workplace that i think probably doesn't exist very many places so so would you yeah. flatter yourself sure. uh, so yeah let me t talk a little bit more about why folks should should listen to me um at least a little bit um or at least you know just again and folks can disagree with what i what i say that's totally fine i mean in terms of, you know, John, as you were saying, the, the sort of the amount of data that we've looked at, we have, um, I think, pretty convincingly, the largest multi-platform data set on workplace interaction in the world, like larger than anyone has had in history. And I can say that quite confidently, right? So as you were saying, we have data from millions of in individuals, you know, billions and billions of interactions, you know, across years at this point, right? So we're deployed globally across every single employee at some of the largest organizations in the world. And actually, we got to this point in late 2019, um, so right before the pandemic, where it became quite clear that at least for information workers at large companies, we have a globally representative data set. And what that means is that, like, if you ask me, how many weak ties does an employee have, have on average globally? And we can talk about how we define it, the exact numbers are robust to definition, but I actually know what that distribution looks like. I know not just what the mean is, but I know what the entire distribution looks like. And that's important because it means... Um, and we can, first of all, we can geek out on like the fact that none of these distributions are that weird mathematically. Like there's no bimodal distributions or weird things like that. They're, these are understood distributions, um, which is good because it means that, you, you know, it's always challenging to say, you know, is this pretty good or good? Because it, you know, for a team, you know, should a team be, you know, very cohesive or only somewhat cohesive, right? Without knowing what the team does, it's essentially impossible to say just from behavioral data, you know, what's good or bad. It's, it's impossible. Um, if I have KPI data, then I could say, you know, a 10% change in this behavior leads to Y percent change in this outcome. But most companies, of course, don't actually have those metrics. Um, however, on the ends of these distributions are things that almost never happen and are almost always bad. 
you know, and a simple example of this, right, is imagine if we talk about manager visibility, you know, how much time do managers spend with their teams? You know, imagine that over the course of a whole month, a manager spends, you know, less than 2% of their time with their team. I don't really care what kind of work the team does. That's almost always bad. Now, there might be a contextual reason why that's going on. You know, they're going through a reorg, you know, the product's on fire and managers are trying to meet, you know, they got pulled into another team, fine, right? But that's where you should focus your attention. And so what it's really given us, I think, is, is this very broad perspective on like how work happens, how it's changed over time, what are the different factors that can influence that? But also this idea that, again, these things are not like, these aren't, they're not bimodal. Like there are of course exceptions in terms of like where companies are in this distribution, but no one is so bizarre that we've never seen anything like that before at this point, right? And it, it really just indicates that a lot of this stuff is is probabilistic, which is frustrating to people because most people they want to say, "Can you just give me a you know a management practice where if I do this, I'm guaranteed to be successful?" And that's just not how things appear to work. It appears to work that you can do something that again, if I had to put money down, I'd say on average it would do this sort of a thing, but it's probabilistic. It might not work for a whole variety of reasons, right? Um, and I, I think that that is something that. You know, people management in general, like I think, again, the data helps in terms of make this very clear, but a lot of executives want something that has perfect predictive power, and that just does not exist. You can say this predicts, you know, a significant percentage of the variance, but even if, you know, you run a test, right, like you still need to run tests because it, it you don't know if it's going to work. And I think this is good, right, because I, I think that in the past people pretended that they knew, oh, this new process is going to make us more productive. Like, you don't know that. Like, you have to do something, of course, right? Like, you need processes. And so it's fine to roll out something that you don't know is going to work. But the only thing you should do is just admit it's a hypothesis, and let's look at the data and see if it worked or not. And that's it. I don't think it's, it, it's actually that radical, but it, it is certainly a different way to think about things. And I think the data has just convinced me more and more that that is, that is fundamentally the right way to do things. So much of uh of what passes for good business sense is um, um, an uh, an overdose of certainty, right? That's 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 um, certainty and a little bit of strutting gets you a long way if you're yes. on the upward climb. Um, um, and you're talking about, I think, what you're talking about is the change from an industrial world to a post-industrial world. Um, that in management in the 21st century, public routine acknowledgement of uncertainty is part of how you get to where you're going, right? And and I don't know, are, are you aware of any places where you could go to a business school and learn how to be an uncertain manager? Uh, well, well, this is what has to change, right? It's at least, you know, now in... Dude, I'll do the plug for my, you know, my, for my MIT course, where I certainly, uh, I certainly try try to instill that to, to the extent that I can. But I do think this is it. Like I think that to the extent that data becomes more and more adopted for people related decisions, I think that this this just becomes evident that it is probabilistic. That chance is a big part of, of outcomes. There's great research by Roberta Sinatra um, over, I believe, at University of Zurich who's done just fantastic research on showing for particular careers, what percentage of career earnings are due to luck. And it's crazy, 
Um, there's at one end, you know, there's at the the one end of the spectrum things like you know pro poker players where it's provable that 75% of career earnings is due to pure luck, which makes sense. You're playing literally poker. Um, but it's fascinating because you even look at things like uh, professors and like how many citations do you get as a professor in your career? And it's over 50% luck, which is hilarious because we think of, especially science, it's this very like, oh, it's this very objective thing. And it's, it's not, and nothing is like that, right? And I think that as we start to become more data-driven about management, then as eventually investors start to look at, you know, not just believing what a company reports out publicly about, oh, we're cross-functionally integrated, or we know, you know, we're going through a transformation that we know is going to make it faster. They'll say, no, 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 prove it. Like, show me the metrics. And what you will see over and over again is that those prognostications are not going to pan out a bunch of the time, but also will start to instill that there is, um, you know, that, that actually you have to be more honest about these things or the like the market will eventually punish you at least is what i hope um this is more of a long-term thing we don't have to get into this right now <laughs> but it is it is my hope that this is something that gradually you know i'm under no illusions this isn't something that is going to change in a five or ten year period but i do think that there is there is a path towards you know over the long term moving things in this much more humble direction and and i think that the pandemic has helped in a lot of ways because it used to be you know pre-pandemic that the CEO could say, well, we need people to come into the office every single day because we know that that makes you more productive. And you can't, and people are still saying that, right? Um, but either about like, you have some folks saying, we want you to come in every day. Some people say, we know that employees choosing whatever they want is what makes them more productive. But all those are lies, right? All of them are lies. Like you don't know that. And at this point, employees are not fooled, right? Because those, you know, they know the emperor has no clothes, right? They're like, what, what data are you using to this? And it always comes back to, oh, well, like, I like it. I like working from home or I don't like working from home and I'm the CEO and I'm successful. So that must mean that's what's best. Or, or maybe what do you got better? Oh, you got a survey that says people like working from home. Like that's the best you got. And so what you get is this is why you get so much pushback at this point across all these corporate decisions, because now just saying, this is what I want to do as CEO is no longer good enough. And I think that data, it doesn't 100% solve this, but it does immensely help because reasonable people, when you say, listen, um, our, here's the data, our best guess is that by having these teams come into the office three days a week, it will change behaviors in this way, which we know relates to these outcomes we care about, right? We, these are the metrics we're going to look at. In three months, we're going to reevaluate and we'll look at them and we can even report out, here's what the effect was. And again, you're never going to make 100% of people happy with any people decision. But reasonable people see that, say, okay, I get why they're doing it. Go along with it, right? And I think that, of course, it takes time to build up that culture across more and more decisions. But I do think like we are on the path uh, towards that. So maybe maybe a, a kind of a, a wrap-up question is, um, one of the things that can happen with the kind of work that you're doing is you get so deep in it and the, the research is so voluminous that it becomes kind of a jail um, and it becomes hard to, hard to find what the next thing is. So, so for you, with this, with this extraordinary bucket of insight, um, what do you want to see on the top of the pile? I mean, 
I guess what I what I want um, company. I, I mean, I think there's this first step, you know, that that the vast majority of companies haven't even done, which is only peripherally related to this kind of data analysis and this data collection, right? Um, and and just first of all, I fundamentally believe that companies make better people decisions when they use data. Right? I just fundamentally believe that's the case. But to do that at at our, in an adequate level, there's a couple things you need. First of all, you need to understand that this is a continuous process. Like this is not like what people have done in the past in terms of you do some project that shows you here, you know, where you come up with the the answer to everything and then you implement it. That's just not how this works. You can say it's not say you don't do pro. You can still do things sort of similar to the way you did in the past. The only difference is that ideally you use data to inform it, and I, you know, you should use data to test it, and you have to periodically revisit it. And we still periodically revisit things today. We just pretend we don't. What normally happens is we wait for the wheels to fall off, and then we revisit it. But again, it, ideally, you don't wait for the wheels. It's to not fall an off. ideal model, <laughs> right? Exactly, right. It's, but it is the so, major model. It is. And so it ideally, is. you do that, right? And ideally, you go through a process of defining your KPIs. And this is—it sounds like so boring, but it's so important that I, again, I, I don't know about about you all, but in my experience, now having worked with many, many companies, I. There's almost no organization that has quantitative KPIs for the majority of their organization, right? You know, maybe folks have quantitative KPIs for like sales or like customer service. But when it comes to like, you know, in a pharmaceutical company, like for R&D, they have no quantitative KPIs. It's just like, here's your boss like you. That's your KPIs, which is, it's. I can tell you what predicts that, just how much time you're spending with your boss, which like, who cares, right? Like, that's not... That's not useful. Like what and you whether or things- not you're working on weekends to impress your boss. Oh well, this uh, <laughs> actually interesting. Interesting. In one of our, in one of our customers, the fascinating thing was that um, working hours, total working hours per week, was actually negatively correlated um, with sales, like quantitative metrics, like hard. Wow. Work. Now people hear that you're like, oh well, you're saying that people should work no hours a week. But no, no. Because no one does that, right? Like everyone was working like roughly at least 40 hours a week, right? Like the data, it's only a small percentage of what is actually possible, right? But the, you know, the idea is that people killing themselves, like that's that's not helpful from a variety of perspectives. And it was it was amazing how like the relationship was quite strong. Like you're getting an R squared of like, you know, 0.5, which is really, really big for that, which is hilarious. Cause again, it's the opposite of what most people think. And that's not to say in some circumstances, again, that could be correlated with promotions, even if it is you know, a negative thing, right? But that I think going through this exercise of periodically defining like what you care about, right? And knowing that it's going to be imperfect, knowing that a lot of qualitative things are still going to matter, and that's fine, right? Like you need to understand that. But at least to have this leading indicator, you know, from a behavioral perspective of, hey, it looks like things are really going to go bad here, right? Because in, without going through that exercise, um, again, there are still, there's a lot of limits to what you can do with behavioral data alone. Once you have that, then we can start getting a lot more powerful. Um, and I don't think at this point, I'm increasingly of the belief now that the limiting factor in companies moving in this direction, like the technology is increasingly there, right? Like I thought when I first started doing this work, I mean, going back to my, start my PhD, it was what, 16 years ago. Um, I mean, I, I don't think people were, were thinking this way at all. The technology definitely wasn't there. The skills definitely weren't there. I don't think it's 100% there yet, but I think it's getting much closer, right? This is much becoming, you know, people don't look at me like I'm crazy anymore at this point, which is, you know, <laughs> maybe they still should, to be fair. But, you yeah. know, 
it's it's getting closer. And so I really do think that the barrier towards adopting this methodology, it really just is about culture, right? And I think that changing the, you know, how we assess ourselves, changing work, changing management culture is really important. Um, I think that ironically, it'll probably change will come most quickly from some company being very successful taking this approach and then everyone copying them, even though like you shouldn't do that. But like, I'll take what I can get if we get to that point. So we'll see. <laughs> John, any final thoughts? Oh, um, I think I think it would be useful for the people who are listening to understand that what we're talking about. Oh, John, we just lost your audio. Let's try again. Back. There back? we go. Yeah, You're, we back. You're back. You're back. If, if I put my hand up, it goes away. <laughs> um, I think it's worth saying to the audience that um, what you've been hearing about today will become foundational as a part of management in any substantive organization over the next 10 or 12 years, probably. And that that what happens when you have a complete or a relatively complete grasp of what's going on in the system that's your company, um, you are in a better position to understand what actually works and doesn't work in the company. And that's something that we haven't really had up until now. So Ben, how do they, how do people get a hold of you when they want to pick your brain? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm on Twitter at B Weber and, uh, you know, my company website is, uh, humanize.com. It's human So feel free to shoot us a note and, uh, or, uh, ping me and yell at me on Twitter. I always, uh, always enjoy that as well. Great. Thanks for the time, Ben. Thanks, Gene. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, John. This was another spirited discussion, as we like (laughs) to say. We'll look forward to sharing this with our listeners of the work podcast. Thank you. Thank you.